Can I begin today with a confession? No? Okay. Sure. Thank you. You guys got to be reactive somewhat. Um, here's the reality, uh, for me at least, the confession, is that most mornings uh, I'm not a Christian until after I've had a cup of coffee. Um, and I don't mean this in a, like, your grandma's, like, you know, coffee mug, don't talk to me until I've had my coffee, you know, sort of way, um, though that is, that is true. Uh, what I mean by this, and, and I don't think that I'm alone in this, is uh, I, I tend to be a fairly skeptical person. Um, I actually found out this week, if you're in, like, the Myers-Briggs, my Myers-Briggs type, uh, I'm most likely to be an atheist. Um, some of you are, like, most likely to succeed. Mine's most likely to be an atheist. Um, and so, hi, I'm your teaching pastor. <laughs> I'm Ryan. Um, it, it seems like uh, most of the time skepticism and doubt are kind of my default setting, uh, my disposition. I kind of face each day um, with kind of doubt, skepticism. That's how it goes. And so it takes me a few minutes each morning uh, not only to get caffeinated but to kind of like review and recommit once again to this whole Jesus thing because it is kind of crazy. Um, God becoming man, getting up from the grave, walking on water, inspired scriptures. These aren't normal things that normal, you know, this is, there's something that it takes a minute for uh, at least me to click in. And like I said, I don't think I'm alone in this because for many of us, uh, we have um, been raised in what the philosopher Charles Taylor called the secular age, where uh, the way that he puts it is, uh, whereas at the end of the gospel, we find only one of the disciples is this guy named Doubting Thomas. Uh, now we're all doubting Thomas. We're all kind of walking around going, I guess this Jesus guy, but unless I, you know, I touch the wound and I see the hand, unless I have some kind of factual evidence, I'm going to have a really, really hard time with this. And so to live in a secular age is to live with this, what he describes, a sense of doubt that follows us around like a stalker who lurks in the shadows. We know that this doubt and skepticism is there, but we can't see it. And so it, we go about in our lives, we're always looking over our shoulder from time to time, trying to like look in our peripheral vision to get a glance at this skepticism and doubt. Because at the end of the day, we're all being followed around by some sense that whatever worldview I've committed to is in fact wrong. That there's some big hole in it that one day it's finally going to catch up and grab me and I'm going to wake up and realize that everything that I've been walking around in for the past few decades was actually all false. And I don't think I'm the only one in this sense. Maybe I am. Maybe that's just my, my INTJ showing up. But maybe not. That's the Myers-Briggs. For, there you go. Anyway. Um, and so the thing is, is that for, for me, I feel like my morning prayer time is, is like, for some people, it's like, this is when I'm like convening with God and I feel like I hear God's voice. And, and that's, you know, you're waking up with your coffee and your Bible and you're putting it on Instagram. That's for some of you. For me, I'm like, am I still in on this Jesus thing? And like shaking with my coffee cup, like no creamer because I don't have time for that because I have to figure out if I'm still gonna follow this Jesus guy. And for some reason, here we are 29 years in, I'm still doing it. And so that's hopefully lucky. Um, and, and the thing is, is as Charles Taylor says, we have this sense that's following us around. And what ends up happening is that for many of us, we hide, uh, not from doubt, but from this like doubt sensation. And so we hide from it through countless distractions within culture, with spectacles and consumerism. We try to find the things that maybe they won't solve our doubts and our fears, the things that we're scared are going to catch up to us, but at least we won't have to think about the things that we're scared of. This is what, again, Taylor calls our distracted and buffered selves. We have a, a buffering, a distraction that keeps us from dealing with all of the things that we're worried about. 
This is why most mornings, it's often easier for me to just drag my feet and traipse through the kitchen for coffee and then fall on the couch where I look at my phone while Doc McStuffins plays in the background. Because I'd much rather do that than once again recommit to this whole way of Jesus. I don't think I'm alone in this. In this secular age, you and I, we each have this option as we wake each day. Are we going to keep running from the shadowy stalker over our shoulder by running to all the distractions out of the terror that we might be wrong? Or will we, will we turn around and face it and enter into that risk, enter into those questions, believing that in fact on the other side of doubt there's something better in store for us? As American poet and uh, pastor minister Frederick Beekner said on the slides, Whether your faith is that there is a God or that there is not a God. If you don't have any doubts, you are either kidding yourself or asleep. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. And I found Frederick Beekner's his thoughts here about doubts being the ants in the pants of faith to be so true within my life. What I found in high school, some of us here, we were raised in the church, raised in like the youth group thing, right? And I came into high school and I had all of these friends that we started having doubts that weren't being addressed and we didn't feel like we could find the resources to deal with those doubts. And what I found was one by one, all my friends that were just like, okay, well, I guess it's not here. I'm just going to walk away from the faith entirely. And I feel like it was right around that sophomore year of high school for me that I was like, I've got you know, these three different ways in front of me. One is kind of going with them and going, I don't feel like my doubts are being answered, and so I'm just going to walk away from them. Or uh, I'm just going to pretend I don't have doubts and just kind of commit to the church, like youth group thing, and that'll work out great. Or I'm going to enter into this third way where I turn around and face my doubts and I figure out what's there. I kind of deconstruct my faith, but then do that while I'm holding my Bible, more or less. And what I found is that as I've done that year over year and time after time and morning after morning, not only am I still a Christian, but I feel like I found that my faith is more alive and sparked. Not, um, it's, it's more alive because of my doubts than in spite of them. And so often we run from our doubts, we distract ourselves into never facing them, and we find that we're surprised when we walk away from the faith or that we're struggling with doubts because we've never strengthened it by actually looking at what we're most scared of. I have found and genuinely believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but in some weird sense, it's like faith's food. It eats it for breakfast. Most of our doubts, when we, ex- when we actually examine them and look at them, what we end up finding is that the reversal clicks into place and our faith is stronger than it was before. And so today, I want to just take some time and actually, as we've been looking at Mark 1, 14 through 15, kind of do something different than what I was planning. We're going to examine one of these doubts. We're going to take a pause from the endless scroll and Doc McStuffins in the background, and we're going to examine Jesus from a different view, looking at one of the big, scary questions that I feel like I got just back on Monday, looking at this text. And we're going to see how something happens in that. Specifically, This doubt that I've had, it hit me Monday morning while reading over the passage. Here's the fear. Here's the doubt. What if Jesus of Nazareth was just a more popular version of John the Baptist? What if if Jesus is just a prophet? What if the 1.8 billion Muslims today that, that would hold that Jesus is just a prophet, what if they're right? Maybe if they're not right about everything, maybe they're right about that one thing. What if Jesus is just a prophet? And I'll show you why that sparked in my head. Look with me in Mark 1, 14 through 15, where we were last week and where we'll continue today. Where Mark, telling the story of Jesus, writes, 
Now, after John was arrested, that being John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand or the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, I read this and right there in the beginning of verse 14, he says, now after John was arrested and that starts making me think. Okay, why is he talking about John? Why not just say on February you know, 3rd, you know, 30 AD or whatever. Why not say, you know, it was springtime and the, the blossoms were out. Why, why bring John in? And so I start thinking about John. And, well, jump back with me to Mark 1, 4 through 8, where we were a few weeks ago, where we see a little bit about John. Where it says that John appeared and he starts baptizing people in the wilderness. And as he's baptizing them, it's, it's happening alongside that he's preaching. He's proclaiming baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And all of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to John the Baptist. They're being baptized by him in the river while they're confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he's got a weird vegan diet of locusts and wild honey. I guess the opposite of vegan, uh, insectozoid diet. <laughs> locusts and wild honey, which I think the honey is just to help the locusts get down, but that's just me. And so John's going around, he's praying or preaching, and he's baptizing, and he's saying, after me comes one who's mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. All of that language of being mightier, of being worthier, of baptizing in the Holy Spirit, he is talking about the God of Israel coming, one who is mightier to save, one who will baptize the people of Israel with the Spirit. He's waiting and examining and waiting for a time when he's gonna come. And here's the thing, you look at what John's doing, and it's a lot what Jesus is doing. Baptism, he's preaching, Confession of sin, even forgiveness of sin. He's out in the wilderness. He's successful. My, my, my fear that began to develop within me is, well, Jesus seems to look a lot like John the Baptist. I mean, not physically. I mean, this probably isn't what they look like. But, I mean, here's the thing. John just looks like Jesus, but he hasn't gotten ready for the day. Or... Like, do you ever, if you, like, collected, like, like action figures that had, like, the battle damage version of, like, you know, Vader or whatever? John looks like the battle, ver like, damaged version of Jesus. Um, and so, obviously, I'm not talking about physicality because John has a much thinner um, face. And even his quote, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand that he's holding is actually something Jesus said. But um, now we're getting into art criticism. Um, Obviously not physically, but when you look at their work, I, 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 Monday morning, I'm sitting here looking at this, and I began to feel the ants in my pants, right, as it were. They have so much in common. What if Jesus is just John with better PR? They're both historical figures. I mean, there's no doubt among Christian or secular historians that Jesus of Nazareth and this John baptizing people historically existed. Within Mark's gospel, both of them get introduced by um, some kind of offstage transcendent voice from the author. Both of them are wilderness preachers. They're related and referred to as teachers or rabbis. They both have a prophetic ministry. Both of them call people to repent, to stop and turn back. Both of them have baptism. John, we see it doing here. Jesus, at the end, he tells people, his disciples, to go and baptize everybody, all the nations, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and even forgiveness of sins. And that's just in Mark's gospel. If we broaden to Matthew, Luke, and John and their gospel accounts of Jesus, we see that John and Jesus were cousins. 
Both of them had disciples. They had Talmudim who followed them around and learned from them in their way. Both of them had a miraculous birth story. John's mother was uh, barren. And so, you know, this is before IVF. It's basic, you know, pretty close to virgin birth. It's not virgin birth, but it's pretty close. They both have a miraculous birth story. They're both described as being filled with the Holy Spirit. They both had a successful ministry. They both called for radical justice. Listen to this and tell me who you think said this. It'll be on the slide. Luke. Luke. The Luke one. Uh, and he answered them. Whoever has two tunics to share with him who has none, and whoever has food to do, likewise. Tax collectors also came and baptized and said, Rabbi, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, but be content with your wages. I mean, this sounds like Jesus-level justice stuff. And that's John. That's John the Baptist. Both of them had people connect them to the ministry of Elijah. Both of them saw themselves as a continuation of the work of the Jewish prophets of the Old Testament. Both of them upset religious leaders. Both of them called religious leaders a nest of vipers or a brood of vipers. And as we just read, John gets arrested. Jesus gets arrested. John is beheaded by the Romans. Jesus is crucified by the Romans. There were even rumors of John the Baptist being raised from the dead before Jesus' own death. Both had deep connections to the Old Testament prophets. They were seen as a continuation of their work. And when I say prophets of Israel, think less Crystal Ball and more Martin Luther King Jr. These were individuals who, yes, had some ability to see what God was going to do in the future, but most of their work were preachers of justice doing public acts to call Israel back to the greater way of the Lord. That These prophets showed up on the scene and said, I had a dream. Prominent figures who were regularly hated in their day and then worshipped after their death, much like Martin Luther King Jr., who pointed people back to God's justice and righteousness and to a future day when God would bring justice and righteousness. All of the prophets were described as being filled like this, with the Spirit, like John and Jesus, working miracles like Jesus, confronting corrupt and broken religious systems like Jesus and John. All of the Old Testament prophets were pointing to a coming day of the Lord of judgment coming. You see that all of this is going on where you see Jesus, and, and in some ways it seems like Jesus just kind of fits right in there. He just had a better PR team. He had better marketing. With so many similarities, what genuinely separates Jesus from John the Baptist and from the prophets of Israel? Why is Christianity the thing it is today? Would there be any difference if John, maybe John did resurrect? Would the Baptists today, would those just be the guys that follow John the Baptist and the Christians, we would be the ones that follow Jesus? Or what would have happened if Jesus didn't resurrect? Why would Mark and the other gospel writers put Jesus so close to this John guy if they knew we were going to get them confused and worried about them being so close to one another? These are the sort of questions that our secular age causes us to ask. This is the existential crisis that I have while I'm, you know, trying to figure out if I want oatmeal or nothing for breakfast. These are the age that this age calls us to ask. We see Jesus and John next to each other, and we have that shadowy, that shadowy sense that some grasp is about to grab us and take us away from the faith that we have, because John actually is just like Jesus. But again, to deconstruct our faith, but do that while we're holding our Bibles so we can put it back together, the question then flips. Well, what if that's precisely what Mark's gospel and the rest of the gospel authors wanted to do in the spirit of God through them? to get us to see Jesus and John together, to make all of these comparisons, 
so that some specific contrasts might show up even more prominent. What if the gospel authors and God in history gave us John right before Jesus so that the first century Jewish crowd and us, it might be kind of like a spot the differences puzzle. You guys aware of these things? This is the best one I could find that wasn't like Dora the Explorer. But maybe I should have used that. Um, So what you have here are two um, uh, paintings that are fairly uh, similar in some ways until you start looking at things like uh, the pastries on the shelf or the number of stripes on his thing. I don't know what to call this outfit. (laughs) Tassels hanging off of his hat. What are some other ones? Oh, signatures that are showing up in the behinds. I think he has an extra finger on one of his hands, uh, but I don't know if that was the authentic one or the remake. And then the, um, the, the backdrop, the landscape, you have these different differences. And, and if I was just to show you one of these paintings, you wouldn't, you would, it'd, just be the, it'd be a painting, right? But when you set them alongside one another, the differences jump out a little bit more conclusively, right? Or maybe if I showed you this picture yesterday, and then I showed you another one tomorrow, you might be able to see some of them, but they wouldn't be as strong because they're sitting next to each other. I think that's what Mark's doing. I think that's what God did in sending John alongside Jesus. Is it's a, it's, a, it's a spot the differences puzzle. Where a pattern is established by one picture and then subverted, contrasted, or deviated from. And it's not just in, in spot the differences. I mean, this is common in children's books. Goldilocks and the Three Bears. This one's to this. This one's to this. This one's just right, right? Pattern, dunna, dunna, subverted. It, it's, this is how it happens. Um, there's a book called I Lost My Hat that I read with Emma all the time. Have you seen my hat? No, I haven't seen your hat. Have you seen my hat? No, I haven't seen your hat. And then he works his way back through, and then it gets subverted at the end that one of the guys did have the hat, and then he eats the bunny. Um, (laughs) We go hard with children's books in the Smith House. It's a cruel world. Um, Or or Dr. Seuss was the best at this. It's like hop on pop or whatever is. There's like rhyme, 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 where you you get into the rhythm, and then he changes it on you, and your tongue like like freaks out. Um, Children's books do this. Um, uh, Princess movies. Disney, for decades, had the princess pattern established, right? True love, love at first sight, right? And that guy's trustworthy and awesome, and true love is only found in romance. Frozen comes along, right? I'm sorry, I'm a dad of a two-year, like three-year-old. This is all I have to work with. And that gets subverted, why? Because the, the love at first sight, that's a bad guy, right? And the true love that saves isn't always the romantic love. In this case, it's the sister who sacrifices herself. It gets subverted, and it's that much more powerful because of decades and decades of a pattern that's been established. This is, I mean, we love these sorts of things when they happen, where a pattern gets established and then deviated. Covers, um, like uh, we had um, some folks over for dinner last night, and we were listening to Weezer's Teal album, um, and they have uh, their cover of TLC's No Scrubs. Um, just go home and listen to that. Um, or like Jose Gonzalez's uh, 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 Teardrop is an awesome cover. There's like mashups on YouTube, Pomplamoose. They do Old Town Road and Pony by Genuine, and it becomes the greatest song of all time. Um, I can't stop singing it. I mean, these things happen, like how everyone from DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, Run the Jewels, Tupac, Childish Gambino, Kendrick Lamar, Kanye, Jay-Z, and the Beastie Boys all sample this one song, Funky President by James Brown, and it shows up everywhere. We love when we catch these things like, oh, this is familiar, and then, oh, no, it's not anymore. There's actually um, doc- Dr. Peter uh, Genata, Genata, a music psychologist from UC Davis, uh, talks about why we love this so much. 
is it's the familiarity of melodies and lyrics that allow us to form expectations, which in part are confirmed, thus giving a certain amount of pleasure that then gets amplified when we're surprised and pleased as we find an unexpected deviation in a new rendition. I think that's what Mark's doing. I think that he's building off the established pattern or that God is doing in history itself through giving us prophet after prophet. And then John, as we see John show up and we start singing along with Jesus, right? And then we start seeing these things where the beat changes, the rhythm changes, and we see Jesus for who he really is and how he's actually different than the prophets that came before. It's an ancient Jewish spot the differences puzzle. But what's that deviation? What are the oh man moments, the flips in the cover? where we make it our own with Jesus. We find it in 1, 14 and 15. You see, the pattern that was established was all the prophets and John with them, though they were filled with the Spirit, though they were in the wilderness, though they were calling out sin and religious leaders and the people of Israel, calling them to repentance, saying, the time is coming, the time is coming, the kingdom is coming, God is coming, God's gonna do something big. So justice, repent of your sins, do justice, do righteousness, because God's coming, because God's coming. That's what John shows up, and he's baptizing people. Because God's coming, Jesus shows up, and what does he say? The kingdom's at hand. He's going, it's here. Still filled in the spirit, still wilderness, calling out sin of religious leaders and the people of Israel. Repent and it flips. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom has arrived and is arriving. After one minute of, in 30 seconds of, right? We will, minute 30 seconds. We will rock you. We will rock you. We will rock you. Minute 30 seconds. And in a minute 30 seconds, the guitar solo comes in and they rock us. This is what Queen does. This is, this is what's going on here, is you have generations and ages of prophets coming, going, the kingdom's coming, you know, the kingdom's coming, and Jesus shows up, and he gets on beat with them, and then it goes, it's here. And so everybody reading Mark and all the people of Jesus' day go, oh, there's something profoundly different, and John saw that himself. Which is why John starts noting things like in John's gospel where when he sees Jesus, he doesn't just say, hey, it's another prophet. It's like Elijah and Elisha, twinsies, right? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He sees something new is happening here. He sends his disciples to go be disciples of Jesus. This reversal shows us something incredible that's happening here. John and all the prophets before him were setting their eyes on some future move when God would come as king to rule and reign over this world, and that would begin in Israel, that he would empower his people through giving them these new hearts through the Spirit. The prophets and John, it was future prophetic. For Jesus, it's a present fulfillment. Jesus has the audacity to claim and say that all those guys were talking about me, and that kingdom is now here. And the king who the prophet said would be the God of Israel is here in me. Which is a turn then at that point because I thought we were talking about Jesus as a prophet. Now I'm claiming not just that he's the prophet of the kingdom who's saying it's here, but he's also the king. It's all wrapped up in the second contrast, the, the pastries on the shelf as it were. There's one more that sticks out just within this passage of how he's different. It's in this call that he makes after saying that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom's at hand. He says, not just repent like John, but he adds something that John doesn't say. And it's this word, believe. When placed together, repent and believe, well, we have to do a little bit of a history lesson to understand the context of this. I want to introduce you to someone. 
This is Flavius Josephus, um, or Flavy Flav, as April called him. A few years after Jesus' crucifixion, during the period of the Jewish-Roman War, don't, don't check out. I know some of you guys are like, oh my gosh, just stick with me. Flavy Flav, I thought that would help. So during the, the Jewish-Roman War, there's a young commander named Flavy Flav, and uh, he was sent by his commanding officer to travel through the land of Galilee, meeting with the Jewish residents who were beginning to develop a revolt against the Roman rule. Flavy Flav was sent to confront these rebel leaders and call them back from their revolt and work out a better way forward. Don't revolt. That was his whole mission. And so what Josephus, when he tells us in his histories, what he would do is he'd go town to town, brigand leader to brigand leader, and he would say, uh, I'm not going to say it in Greek. He would say, repent and believe in me. Now what Flavy Flav was calling these people to do was not have a religious experience, quit sinning, Right? In the context of the conversation, he was saying, um, as a representative of the kingdom that you're under, I'm saying you guys need to turn from this revolt, and you guys need to believe, give trust, allegiance, loyalty, whatever language you want to use, faith, to me. Because the way that you're going, this revolt is not going to end well for you. And so when Jesus shows up and he starts using this repent and believe language, this is not simply a call to have some kind of um, religious or theological dimension, although that's, absolute, that's, that's true. We assume that. But what we miss out is this royal summons that's happening alongside this, where Jesus is emerging not just as prophet, but as a royal presence who's calling his hearers to give up their agendas and to give allegiance and trust and loyalty to the God who has now come as king whether it's first century nationalist revolution in Galilee or 21st century individualist revolution in LA, the call by Jesus is to repent and believe. Jesus is not just only claiming that the prophesied kingdom of God is here, but that he is the king, calling people to turn to him, to believe in him, to trust him, to place their faith in him, to believe in him, to be loyal and allegiant to him. So this language of believe is not just a mere intellectual assent I, 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 you know, in my mind, Jesus died for my sins, and that's kind of it. It's not a leap in the dark or, or some kind of opposite of works language. It's not a it's all good attitude. Jesus is not calling us to like every little thing's going to work all out, whatever thing. I don't know. He's not calling us to that. He's calling us to so much more. To believe in Jesus is to believe that the claim he's making in his gospel about the kingdom being here in him is to believe that the claim that he's making is true, and then because of a belief that that claim is true, to be loyal and faithful to him as king. Jesus arrives in this pattern of the prophets, the greatest and most connected to God is, is, is seen. And John, as its final and greatest member before Jesus, Jesus himself would call him this, he sees that Jesus is this culmination. He sees Jesus as the guitar solo. And so it becomes evidence that what I was so afraid of, that, that Jesus is just a prophet like John, I actually find out that, that that's the reversal is the case. That it's not that Jesus is like John and all the prophets, it's that all the prophets and John have been like Jesus. Developing a pattern that he would fit into. So that we might be able to see that Jesus is far more than a prophet. And this wasn't just Mark's intent in telling a story, but God's intent in real time and real space that we might be able to see that all these prophets who are waiting for something in future tense has now arrived in the present. Jesus is this culmination. 
mean, if we go back and just see how this culmination and subversion happens, if we go back and look to verse 7, we see a summary statement of the sermons of John the Baptist. What was he preaching? He was saying, after me comes one who's mightier than I. So he's waiting for someone that's mightier. And who shows up on the scene? Jesus. Mightier than John. I mean, he, he tells the sea to like stop it and it stops. He tells demons, get out. And they get out. Diseases, you're, you're done. This body, no more. Get out. And people are healed. And yet there's also subversion that the God who calls dead girls to wake up, the Jesus that calls demons to leave, is also the one that turns this might and strength on its head by showing a strength that is so strong it's able to forgive and love and bless its enemies. A strength that powerfully works for justice through not the sword but nonviolence and is gentle enough, this strength that little kids can climb up into its lap and feel safe. Jesus is both a culmination and a subversion of all John was hoping for and all the prophets pointed to. Similarly, as we keep reading, John talks about one who's going to come that he's not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals to wash his feet because he's so good. This language of taking off shoes and washing feet would be the lowest mark of servants within the house. And he's saying, John, the greatest of the prophets, I can't even wash his feet, can't even take his shoes off. And who shows up? Jesus. Honorable Jesus, son of God, son of man, anointed king and messiah, rabbi, all the honor in Jesus. And yet he takes this honor somewhere that we wouldn't think honor goes. He passes on status and regularly chooses to enter into service, not only undoing the sandals of his disciples, but washing their feet. And not just to wash their feet, but as John continues, he says that someone's gonna come that won't only untie sandals he's not worthy enough to do, but one that, unlike John, who just baptizes with water, this one to come will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John addresses the Jews of Judea and Jerusalem, claiming that the baptism in the water that he offers is one of repentance in preparation for the one who would come to baptize them, not just in water, but in the Spirit. And Jesus comes as this culmination where he calls disciples to be baptized in the water as a mark of repentance, and with that, forgiveness of sins and a baptism in the Holy Spirit, empowering them to be the people of God that they had been made to be where people young and old would be empowered to prophesy, to dream dreams and see visions and most surprisingly keep God's commandments and walk in his ways. But Jesus turns it over, however, like these other ones, because the way that Jesus brings about this baptism for his people is by undergoing what he calls the baptism of which I am to be baptized in Mark 10 and other places. Right after talking about this baptism that Jesus would go into that was different than baptism in water, baptism in spirit, he followed it by saying, for even the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. In order for these prophetic expectations of baptism in spirit and baptism in water to happen, Jesus says there's a baptism that he has to go through, one in which he will be baptized in something so that people can be ransomed into the baptism that he wants to give. The baptism that Jesus offers of life and forgiveness, of union with his spirit, came through the strange and even off-putting reality of Jesus' baptism into violence, his baptism into evil, his baptism into darkness and death through his arrest and trial and torture, his crucifixion and death. 
in order for Jesus to baptize us in the waters of forgiveness and the spirit of life, this king of the kingdom, this prophet that all the prophets had anticipated dove into and dove after drowning humanity in the waters of the empires of chaos and sin and death that we have weaved for ourselves. We have gladly dove into these waters and, and drank up to the point of our own death. And Jesus died as he breathed life into our dead lungs and pushed us above the waters. You see, Jesus was the culmination and subversion of all John and the prophets were waiting for. But the great news of Christianity is that the guitar solo wasn't done. There was a greater culmination. A greater thing that some of the prophets may have hinted at but didn't really fully see was that this one who would suffer and die for the ransom and forgiveness of people would overcome that death by resurrecting within the powering work of the Holy Spirit being bodily raised to life, and in doing so, God's vindication and proving this is my king, this is the one that all my prophets were pointing at was true and shown to the world. And from that resurrection, we believe, we are allegiant, we follow, we trust our currently reigning king Jesus who rules with the father, and we believe him when he says that he is one day going to come, and he will say on that day, not just that the kingdom is at hand, but that it is fully here. It is no longer now and not yet, it's all now. And like I said, John himself saw only a glimpse of this when he met Jesus. And though he was arrested and beheaded long before he ever saw Jesus' death, his crucifixion, and his resurrection, John is one of the prophets. He saw this. And that's why in John, he says, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knew about Jesus' mission to dive in after the waters, what all the prophets had been waiting for. And so this is who Jesus is, the great culmination and contrasting surprise of all the patterns and hopes of Israel. John saw that he believed even while he wrestled with doubt. What does it look like for us to repent and believe in him? A few things. First, for many of us Christians, we need to double check that we're disciples of Jesus and not John. What I mean by this is that many Christians today, our gospel, our message sounds more like John the Baptist than Jesus. We have repentance, we have baptism, we have forgiveness of sin, and all of our hope is in only some future move of God. Whereas to be followers of Jesus is, yes, baptism and forgiveness and repentance and all of these things happening, um, and yes, future hope, but also receiving what Jesus says is already beginning now and here. You see, the kingdom is now and not yet. And I would say that in this church, and not even this church, but in, in American evangelicalism in general, many of us have over-focused on the not yet portions of the kingdom to the fact that we have not seen the now and seen those invitations. That Jesus is here. That his kingdom of God, this, this kingdom of heaven is presently in breaking and it's inaugurated through what Jesus has done. And so when we see Jesus is here, we saw that John sends his disciples ahead, go with Jesus now. You guys don't need to be with me anymore because the one that you're waiting for is right over there. And I would say some of us, we just need to kind of look and make sure we don't think we're following Jesus, but the message that we believe looks more like John's than like Jesus's, where we have all future and no present with where the kingdom is today. For others of you here today, or, or my prayer would be at some point in the future, there will come a moment when you begin to take Jesus for who he claimed to be. There's many of you, one of the things I love about our church is that this is a safe place to investigate and ask questions to, to I mean, obviously, I'm the guy that, that isn't a Christian when I wake up most mornings. Hopefully, this is a safe place because I wouldn't be here. 
but, but the whole thing is that as you work through your doubts, at some point you're gonna see Jesus for who he really is. And at that moment, you're going to have, you're gonna have to do something with that reality. And the called response by Jesus is for you to repent and believe in him. Like the rebels Flavy Flav came to, that you need to heed the call, the royal summons to give up the agendas of your ego empires that we all seek to build and that time and time have proven to be unfruitful for us. To follow Jesus does not mean that, that he is okay with some kind of, he, he, the kingdom of heaven is, is breaking in. He's not looking for people that are waiting for just the future. He wants people that are partnering with him here and now as we move towards the future. And so what that means is to repent and to believe in him is, again, your little ego empire that you struggle to run to, even in the midst of following Jesus, place your belief and trust in him. Seeing him as the saving king who through his baptism into death and his resurrection into life now offers forgiveness of sins and union with his Holy Spirit and the empowering work of slowly transforming you into a kingdom person and fulfilling that process in your own resurrection one day, which he patterned and showed you you can trust in because of his own. Which if that sounds like a lot, at some point we all have to believe in Jesus as the saving, transforming, and risen king. And to follow him, as we'll see next week, to receive that life-saving breath. But for all of us here today, to hear that Jesus is called to repent and believe the gospel is both a decisive one-day moment that many of you are invited into today, and a lot of you have already made at some point, but it doesn't stop there. It is a daily posture that all of us are called to do. For some of us, me waking up each day to repent and believe is probably going to be a little bit more intellectual and kicking it in. But that doesn't mean that it's just intellectual processes where I've got my giant books that I'm going through with my coffee to read, you know, okay, I'm going to be a Christian again. To repent and believe, as we saw, is the, the call to each day turn from my ego empire and turn to this inaugurated kingdom. And to believe that as I'm walking through my life, that there's an invitation here. There's something that I'm being invited into, and not just invited into, but bought into by what Jesus has done, and to walk into that. It's not just a one-time decision, but in each day, it is a one-time decision, and the surprise is, is that it's also a daily posture that we get into. That we wake up and we work through our doubts, we work through our selfishness, we work through our impatience and our anger and our guilt and our fear, and, and we work through our skepticism and our pre-caffeine atheism, but yet within all those things, we believe that the gospel, the greater kingdom of God, is now open and available to us in this moment, in this day, in this week, and in eternity ahead with opportunities to experience the love of God, to participate in that love, to participate in that kingdom through service and care and forgiveness of enemies and joy and peace and honesty and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness. This is what the kingdom looks like. And the saddest thing would be for us to think that that only exists in the future and that there's not appetizers for us each morning, each day, each week. And so this is the invitation that when Jesus says repent and believe is to see him as far more than any of the prophets ever were. And as one that unlike the prophets that you could kind of ignore or kind of read or you know at Christmas time we get into Isaiah or whatever, to see someone who deserves all of your belief, all of your repentance, all of your life to trust him and obey him and know him and to be known by him and saved by him. Jesus calls something that John the Baptist could never swing at. And this is why he's worth following. And, and so while Doc McStuffins plays in the background, we wake up each morning and we commit to following him again. Let's pray.